and there was no remedy. January 8th, 2024. Introduction. We are often reminded, in the words of the preacher, that there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. By this observation, he certainly does not mean that there cannot be any new inventions or any new devices. The prophet Daniel tells us that men will run to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Daniel 12.4. We have figured out lots of new things that have certainly appeared transformative, and on their own level, we need to grant that they have been transformative. I'm speaking of the screw pump, or the long bow, or the steam engine, or the microchip. The hot new thing that all the folks are talking about now is AI. But at the end of the day, after all the excitement over whatever has died down, the perennial issues still remain. People are still people. And this is what the preacher was talking about. The human condition is the human condition, and what we are calling our postmodern ennui or angst or decadence, as though it were some new thing, is not a new thing at all. What we are going through is just what cultures always go through when they get to this stage. Imagine being an 85-year-old man who had come to believe that his situation or condition was absolutely unique in the history of the world. He was the only one. He couldn't read up on what was going to happen to him next because he thought he was the only person this had ever happened to. Far from being the kind of thing that Cicero mused about, or that meme makers have fun with, or that scripture treats as the way of all flesh, Ecclesiastes 12, 1-8, his experience was sui generis, absolutely unique. For an old man in that state of delusion, every new ache or pain would cause astonishment and consternation. It would be an occasion of great excitement again and again. There are many aspects of this, and they are as wide as a culture is. But I am interested here in one particular aspect of it, one perennial recurrence that is as old as dirt. The history that mankind has with prophets, seers, messengers, and other watchmen on the tower can be summed up in one tidy phrase, another barn door, another horse. In short, we do this over and over again and again. Each generation, we forget that generations age. Each society starts out like a 20-year-old with good digestion, the kind who is 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And because they are always full of that piss and vinegar, they always find it easy to backhand their seers who see the nature of the trouble ahead. The Jews had their seers who were divinely inspired, and the pagans ignored their wise men who simply had eyes in their head. And the situation is routinely made more complicated by would-be seers who are simply alarmists. They were not filled with insight and wisdom, but rather were brimming with their own crotchets, prophesying disasters that never come to pass. We have 36 months to save the planet. Such were hustlers, not prophets, and one of their roles is to make it easier for everybody to ignore the real prophets and the real dangers. But enough about Paul Ehrlich, Al Gore, and Greta Thunberg. And so the seers are ignored. But lo, reality starts to seep in. Tombs of the Prophets. And here's one part of the central pattern, the part that should have our fixed attention today. When things are swell and our ruling elites are fat and sassy, truth-tellers arise and warn them of the shape of things to come. These truth-tellers are laughed to scorn, patronized, ostracized, persecuted, imprisoned, and sometimes killed. But as the fabric of that society continues to unravel, it starts to become apparent to more and more people that the truth-tellers were, come to think of it, tellers of truth. It all starts to happen. Everything starts crashing in, and in the immediate aftermath, after the rubble has settled, someone suggests that they build a memorial to the prophet who so lately walked among us. The thing is done, and the ribbon-cutting ceremony was solemn. But over time, things start to revert to normal. And as they head back to normal, we discover that one of the characteristics of quote-unquote normal is that the curators of the memorials become quite accustomed to their cushy jobs and princely salaries and find themselves well-positioned to make life miserable for the next aspiring truth-teller who thinks 
thinks in his swollen conceits that he has anything whatever in common with the previous truth-tellers. You're no Luther, pal. And what are the differences exactly? Well, Luther is dead now, and he has this memorial here. You new guys are a pain in the neck, and you say ugly and hurtful things. Quote, Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Luke eleven forty-seven through 51 This is the way it has always been. To take a phrase from this passage, from the foundation of the world, this is the way it goes. And there's an interesting twist here in how Jesus introduces the reference to the Old Testament. He says, quote, Therefore also said the wisdom of God. When we are talking about this pattern, the wisdom of God contrasts sharply with what we would call the wisdom of man, or to employ its synonym, the folly of man. What was the Lord Jesus referring to? Try this from Second Chronicles. Quote, and the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. And there you have it, until there was no remedy. There was no remedy possible, but a little later there would be time for a memorial this is the wisdom of God. For those who hate such wisdom, the only alternative for them is the pursuit of death. To hate wisdom is to have a love affair with death. And that is why all the isms that afflict us, taken together, are just one long suicide note. Quote, but he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All that hate me love death. Proverbs 8.36. Now granted, that suicide note can be pretty garbled and convoluted, like some shooter's manifesto, but it always boils down to death. All the ugly isms think that French kissing with zombies sounds sexy. Case in point. One of our seers, one of the great ones, was C.S. Lewis. He had the unique honor of having had work on his memorial start early, almost immediately after his death. It has been a sight to behold. Folks started becoming C.S. Lewis scholars almost right away, and some of them, say like Michael Ward, really have been invaluable. But others have been pretty tedious and certified well beyond their intelligence. They know his work in a pedantic sort of way, but they do not understand the central genius of his insight at all. Let me give you a sample. Recently, Josh Dawes, at Josh Dawes, started up a kerfluffle online by quoting C.S. Lewis and then applying the quote to our culture wars. Here's the quote. Quote, the idea of the knight, the Christian in arms for the defense of a good cause, is one of the great Christian ideas. War is a dreadful thing, and I can respect an honest pacifist, though I think he is entirely mistaken. What I cannot understand is the sort of semi-pacifism you get nowadays, which gives people the idea that though you have to fight, you ought to do it with a long face, and as if you were ashamed of it. It is that feeling that robs lots of magnificent young Christians in the services of something they have a right to, something which is the natural accompaniment of courage, a kind of gaiety and wholeheartedness. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Commenters came out, indeed, in an explosive swarm, and some of them were velvet rope curator types. One of them introduced herself on this wise, quote, C.S. Lewis scholar here. Let's dive into this. This was followed by a long thread topped off with a Taylor Swift gif. The thread pointed out that original quote in context was all about forgiveness, which was true enough and utterly beside the point. 
but common sense was restored with a thud when Meg Basham reminded everyone of that hideous strength. The Academy may have more than a little bit of the witch's green powder, but we have THS, which smells like burnt marshwiggle. And who exactly introduces themselves with C.S. Lewis Scholar here? Step aside, folks. Expertise incoming. And a number of the commenters tried to shame Dawes by saying that Lewis was, quote, talking about a real war, you bozo, not a culture war. Again, that hideous strength helps us. Apart from the denouement which Merlin wrecks havoc at Belbury and then wipes Edgestow off the map, that whole thing was, quote, not a real war. And those fireworks at the end, although clearly destruction in real time, was not a real war either. That was more like a supernatural intervention. The company at St. Anne's did not fire a shot. The whole conflict revolved around dirty academic politics, manipulation of the masses through the media, scientists messing around with things they didn't respect or understand, and powerful bureaucratic forces driving toward a global and demonic tyranny. And all without any kind of real war. What shall we call this kind of thing? What possible relevance could it have for us today? Quote, I said McPhee, and it could be a right good history without mentioning you and me or most of those present. I'd be greatly obliged if anyone would tell me what we have done, always apart from feeding the pigs and raising some very decent vegetables. Lewis, that hideous strength, page 385. To which the director replies that what was required was obedience. And this, be it noted, is an alien concept for these curator types. And everybody needs to remember that if the forces of Belbury had not been undone through the grace of Maladil, the bad guys by this point in our history would be in full control of the C.S. Lewis estate. And you can be assured that they would have AI engines working hard to produce lost Lewis manuscripts that revealed that Lewis, quite ahead of his time really, had unambiguous sympathies with what we now recognize as the trans revolution. And that Alcassan really did have some good points. He was a brilliant scientist after all. Maybe a positive, maybe a negative. I've mentioned from time to time that we here in Moscow have been warning about the inevitability of our current cultural freefall that we are now experiencing, and we've been warning about this for decades. We do not claim to have had any special insight or revelation ourselves, but in this regard have simply been faithful readers and disciples of men like Kuiper, Van Prinsterer, Hodge, Dabney, Machen, Lewis, Schaefer, Rushdoony, and some other eclectic seers we've had in our library. But as a consequence, the old guard of the evangelical establishment wouldn't touch us with a barge pole. We've either been shut out and ignored on the one hand, or slandered on the other. But I have also previously mentioned that this embargo is now effectively broken, which is, of course, gratifying. We've been most thankful for that fact and have put a positive construction on it. But there are two possible interpretations that can be put on this development, and we would much rather it be the one and not the other. Here's the positive construction. The fact that large numbers of Christians are now willing to hear no-nonsense applications of biblical truth to the current hysterics could mean that we are on the verge of a great reformation, which is the only thing that could possibly save our bacon. But the other thing it could mean is that we are now at the point where it doesn't much matter what anybody thinks, seeing that there is no remedy. If you look again at the picture of the fall of Rome that I posted here, it would be a small consolation if, on that crowded bridge in the middle of the picture there, someone remarked, you know, this is what the Sybil said would happen. So pray that it not be the no remedy scenario.